As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Shopping for bras has usually been a headache for me up until I started using Third Love. I used to feel like I had compression bands around my chest. Yes, compression bands. Or like there was like wiring poking me. It just never seemed to work out. And honestly, most times I just opted for a sports bra or all my friends know I just wouldn't wear a bra, TMI, because I just wanted to avoid the mess. Ladies, as y'all know, having the right bra is so, so important. Go to thirdlove.com slash foodheaven for 15% off today. All right, let's get into our episode. Hey, it's Wendy. And it's Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast, your online resource for delicious and nutritious living. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to the Food Heaven podcast. Today we're talking with Rebecca Scritchfield, registered dietitian, certified exercise physiologist, and author of the Body Kindness book, and a host of the Body Kindness podcast. Through her weight-inclusive counseling practice, Rebecca helps people make peace with food and find the joy in exercise. Rebecca has influenced millions through her writing, podcasts, and appearances in outlets like NBC, CNN, The Today Show, Washington Post, and more. Today, we are going to be talking with Rebecca about BMI, which is body mass index. And we're going to pick her brain on whether or not BMI is BS. We actually had Rebecca on the podcast a couple of years ago talking about health at every size and intuitive eating and her whole practice of body kindness and taking care of yourself from the inside out without dieting. So if you want more about her background and how she got into this work, make sure to check out the body kindness episode. But today we're just going to jump right in and really get an understanding on what the research says when it comes to BMI and is it something that you guys should use as a determining factor of your health. So welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Thanks for having me back. Yay. So excited to have you. So we just want to jump right in. And I know that There may be people who want to learn more about you and your background, but we're going to refer you guys to the the initial episode we did with Rebecca where we talked all about like how she got into nutrition and how she transitioned into kind of health at every size. But today we're just going to jump right into BMI. So just tell us like first and foremost, in a nutshell, is BMI BS? (laughs) And what is BMI? And what is BMI? Yeah, Yeah. there might be people that are like, what the hell is a BMI? (laughs) Good point. Yeah, I was like, I want to say the answer. Yes, I hate it. Go away. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and you know, it, it's I just am 100% aligned with you that I'm always talking to my clients about it, even friends, you know, and if you really think about it, right, if we just reflect in our world, like you can't see the doctor, your kids can't go to the school nurse, you can't do a Google search about a health topic or read a book or listen to a podcast that's about health without hearing about. BMI, which stands for body mass index. 
But that's how pervasive it is, right? And, and I think that's an important note to make is that it is literally everywhere. And so the idea that it's so prevalent makes you think that, well, this must be true. This must be important. I must do something about it. And so it ends up, you know, coming along with a lot of fear, right? Because it's tied to like fear of like, I'm doomed to poor health. If my BMI isn't the perfect number. So I just want to empathize with the listeners for a minute, you know, that you can't go anywhere without hearing about it. And there's so much confusion around it. So to back up, to help people understand it a little bit better, I think it's important to just take a look back at the history of it. And the bottom line is to understand that it is a really old equation. It was created in the 1830s. And think about this. It's a time when we had no computers, not even like a little calculator, right? And we certainly didn't understand the complexities of weight and health at the time. Um, so a mathematician designed it to just try to give a very rough idea of someone's weight status by like dividing their weight by their height. Um, and so it was old, but then, uh, as time went on and I think it was around the late 1950s, it was adopted by a life insurance company as a way to sort of look at weight in terms of health, right? And I think of life insurance company, right? They're a business that is there (laughs) to make money, right? And so if they want to exclude people from life insurance policies, because, oh, well, maybe you did this to yourself with this early death, right? So it starts to get really twisted, right? Like a life insurance company is a business that's not your doctor. So why is your doctor talking about BMI? Yes, so true when you really think about the history and like was it something that was really studied and has a lot of validity to it? It sounds like it, yeah, it hasn't really been studied and it was put out there by a business machine to make more money. So that's a really good point. Well, and another good point about it that I always like to let people know is that, like, what is the attachment to it, right, in medicine and public health? And this is the bottom line with that. It's very easy to obtain information because you just need two factors, height and weight. Like, you don't even need a tape measure. So when you think about it in the context of looking at populations, something that could be used worldwide, it is really easy to obtain quick, easy, you know, piece of information. But what we need to remember is that there really is no evidence that the information it obtained is meaningful, like that it actually predicts useful information about health or disease risk. And what's really scary is that in our culture today, it can be used to determine how much your insurance policy, uh, your health insurance policy is policy is going to cost, whether or not they want to include you or exclude you. And it can even be used to determine whether or not that they're willing to give you necessary medical care, such as surgery, whether that might be for knee or hips, or even something like in vitro fertilization, which, you know, folks argue that it's a form of eugenics, right? If you can use somebody's body mass index to say, nope, we're not going to do IVF for you, right? You're basically taken away somebody's chance to have a baby because of their BMI, but you would help a lower weight person. You're not giving them the opportunity to allow, first of all, the joy of becoming a parent, but then also moving their genetics forward. So it's really political too. 
Yeah, and it's also crazy how many assumptions are made off of someone's BMI because a lot of providers are literally just plugging in the numbers and they're like, this is what you need to do because this is your BMI. And there are no questions asked whatsoever about medical history, family history, habits at all. And so there's this assumption, I think, among medical practitioners, but also just among like people who are familiar with BMI, that people that have lower BMI are automatically deemed healthy. People that have higher BMI are not healthy. So I was wondering if you could share some of your insights around that and maybe even like any research that you've come across that's really interesting that um, discredits that, that whole idea. Yeah, sure. So whenever we're talking about assumptions, you know, what we're really talking about is is our weight bias, right? And that's, that's a cultural construct for us, right? Like it was before since any of us were born, but there was a time when higher weight was like um, powerful and desirable. Um, and it's just now in our lifetime, it's, you know, thin has all the power and higher weight, you're going to be more oppressed. And so as human beings, right, we're, we're often um, just sort of trying to rate our opinions about people. And it's, it's, it's partially it's how humans think, right? Like our brains need to sort of um, put it in that context of is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? But then on top of like culturally what we say we value, then there are winners and losers, right? So I also want to help people understand that, that it's, it's, there's no like personal blame where it's just like, what can I do to lower my BMI or, you know, you know, I'd, I'd like to weight. a big part of that has to do with the fact of that you would experience less bias because of how our whole society works with respect to, well, how could that judgment, you know, kind of mischaracterize people? There's a lot of interesting things. So one um, really big study that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association ran the statistics and actually showed that people who had a BMI that was overweight or obesity grade one actually had the longest chances for longevity. And it was people who had a BMI that was considered, quote, normal or underweight, who had a reduced life expectancy. So it was it was pretty mind-blowing because the way the statistics worked out, it didn't really match what we would think based on our, you know, social judgments. And then again, well, people would say, oh, so we're just supposed to eat donuts and never exercise. Don't jump to those conclusions. No, it just continues to contribute to the flaw that that number is really not saying, well, if you fit this category, you must be doing something wrong. One gigantic reason for the flaw is that it does not take into account muscle mass or things like where there might be diversity in bone density and everything like that. Because um, the other thing about how these numbers were, you know, normalized is it was based off of white males as opposed to um, there wasn't exactly a diverse population that was used to kind of validate this equation either. Mm, that's so powerful because I feel like, especially as people of color, we're mm-hmm. always, you know, like a lot of times we might have a higher BMI. I mean, so many of like my patients who are black women and, mm-hmm. you know, they automatically feel like, oh my God, there's something wrong. Like, what do I need to do? Do I need to lose weight? And so basically what you're saying is that even with this tool that isn't necessarily that accurate to begin with, it also 
doesn't even apply to anyone who isn't a white male. So it like at best, would you say it's irrelevant for people of color or like how would you how would you say people of color should navigate BMI? Yeah. Well, I think that it's, um, I can point to a couple studies that are worth taking a look at. I'll give the sort of, you know, the bottom line some, and then I could send you, give you the links to the studies um, if you'd like to share them in the show notes. But one was in 2011, and it was published in the research journal Obesity. And what they found was that white women with a BMI of 30 or more and a waist circumference of 36 inches or more were at a greater risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. But black women who had those same numbers were considered medically healthy. So part of what this study is showing is that there can be an association with certain BMI factors that could increase your risk. It doesn't mean that you're going to get certain conditions because there's so many factors, genetics being one of them. And lifestyle does play a role, but not as an important role as we think. But then when you segment it out, right, between white women and black women, the the black women were not at a higher risk. So there was a difference in how they experienced their risk. But that's not common knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you're not likely to go to your doctor and be like, well, you know, and, and, and again, how you were mentioning assumptions, right? The, the way the whole system works is you show up for your medical appointment before you even see the doctor, you step on a scale. And the reason why you do that is because it's recommended. Um, it's a recommended screening by something called the U.S. Preventative Task Force. And um, it has like a B grade, which it's not even, it's just kind of like, eh, you know, like we think this could be helpful, but it's a recommended screening that you weigh the client calculate their BMI, and then you talk to them about an intensive behavioral program if their BMI is of a certain number, right? So the higher BMI. What's fascinating about that, you know, approach is that, number one, we are not educated that it's an optional screening that we can decline. And in fact, I've talked to clients about this and talked about like refusing to be weighed at the doctors because it was a traumatic experience. And and sometimes they'll get like pressured. Well, why don't, you know, like I might need to know this number and why don't you want to get weighed? And, but you can literally say, unless it's medically necessary, I decline to have this screening. But the other thing that it does in the process is it, you know, it might flag them to give you counseling that you don't really need, right? Because you're in there for an earache and you're happy with your habits. Mm -hmm. But instead of them talking to you about your habits, they say, oh, well, you're BMI and blah, 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 and doom and gloom. That's really unhelpful. It actually can create a lot of shame and healthcare stress, which could lead to future healthcare avoidance. But the other element is this is back into the insurance company thing is when they have that conversation with you, they check a box and they get to bill insurance for it. And mm. so I don't want to think that doctors are malicious. All doctors are malicious, right? I want to think that they genuinely care about helping people. But now if you see how twisted all of this stuff is, right, it's recommended that you do this, but we don't know it's an optional screening and your doctor's going to bring it up. And if it's something that is a, is is important in how you have those conversations about your self-care and your well-being, right, that they're bringing it up because they were told to, and they're going to get paid by insurance to do it. So it's this whole system that kind of keeps BMI in medicine. And then yet we have these research studies that show that it's really not that helpful. One other study that looked at um, Black people 
it showed that like black people had less body fat than white people. So even when they had the same BMI and waist measurements, that they had lower body fat. And so there's this belief that, you know, black people might have more muscle mass. And so that is really going to mess up their BMI calculation. So at any rate, the fact that we walk around like so afraid of what our body mass index is, or that depending on where we land, that that means something about our health, that is what's problematic. And we need to kind of reframe our relationship with our weight, our BMI, and even how we see our health and well-being. Yeah. When I've when I've spoken to healthcare providers about this topic, what usually comes up is the re- well, what about the research and the research? And there's there's so much there's so much research out there about BMI and about how it's correlated with all of these chronic conditions. And usually, like all of the factors that we've spoken about, like medical history, family history, genetics, like lifestyle factors, all these things are usually never discussed. And there's such a focus on BMI. Mm-hmm. So how have you navigated talking with healthcare providers that are BMI focused? Because it's really tricky. Like I've had these conversations in clinics that I've worked at and it's like, there's just always this focus on, okay, but what about all of the research that has been done for all of the years? Like, what do you have to say to that? Sure. So generally speaking, I might get into a conversation just about the bias in research in and of itself, right? Like even research is rooted in bias about weight and white supremacy, what gets funded, who gets chosen to study, how long is the research study? So especially when you're looking at at things like weight and BMI, you know, most studies are less than a year. Some are even like, oh, in a 12-week program for, you know, for with 11 people, (laughs) right? So very small study size and all these other things. But like, unless you're looking at people in two to five years later after an intervention, then you're really not capturing what could be a weight cycle, meaning that, you know, you you employed, you know, significant lifestyle changes with the hopes that that person would lose weight, right, and improve their BMI number. And then, you know, what ends up happening is, you know, because we have a set point range, even if we maintain those habits. And we might even have better lab value markers, but even if we maintain those habits, some people will cycle down in weight and then back up again. And we saw that in the look ahead study, which it was ended a few years early due to futility because they found that even with intensive lifestyle, that people with diabetes still had a higher risk of cardiovascular events. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't work to improve people's quality of life. It's just that looking at research and assuming that, oh, all research is a gold standard. And if one study said it, it must be true. It's like knowing the way that research works. It's like, we have a guess and we think we might be right. And we're going to get a little bit smarter in this one study. And then that's going to lead to another study because we learned one little new thing. And then, you know, it's a cycle. Like research always begets more research. And yes, we need it. And we will learn and grow. But using the research to be a definitive thing as, and this is why I need to take this study and apply it to this individual, I actually think is really unhelpful. And I'll give you a specific example for that too. In a conversation with another helping professional, I often, I want to meet them where they're at and I want to 
kind of start with empathy and more kind of question seeking and peak curiosity. So I might ask a question like, well, how would it be helpful to start with things like BMI and weight first as your flagging factors that would lead to the next conversation about self-care and well-being and healthy lifestyle? And I want to get you know, their answer and they might point to research. But what is fascinating is that if you start with a BMI, you actually might miss a screening opportunity for people with heart disease and type 2 diabetes risks because um, there was a really large study. There was more than 40,000 people in it. This was published in the International Journal of Obesity too, that suggested that nearly half of the people who are categorized as overweight were cardiometabolically healthy, while 30% of the people within the normal BMI were not in good shape, right? So if you start with the BMI and, oh, it's normal, I'm not going to have that conversation. What if they actually needed conversations about self-care? You're missing them. And then you're targeting the people who have the higher BMI. And what if everything's hunky-dory there? You know, and so and I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that the that the end result is questioning how helpful is it to start with BMI and wait to guide the next conversation. Yeah. I love how you focus also on empathy because I know at the end of the day, like we're all trying to help people for the most part <laughs> and yeah. we want yeah. people <laughs> to be healthier and we're coming from a good place. So I like just coming from that place of curiosity um, I think can make people feel less defensive and just presenting like the study that you just mentioned. I've seen that study as well. And I'll, um, I'll use that in some of the talks that I do just to illustrate that, yeah, it doesn't, you know, always necessarily um, correlate the way that you think it would in terms of like people who are at higher weights being unhealthy. Um, one question mm-hmm. I have as a follow-up is, so then what are the things, can you talk about the things that you would look at as opposed to BMI. So let's say BMI is BS. How do I know if I am metabolically healthy? Sure. So knowing family history, I think is really important because most chronic diseases are genetically heritable around 80%. And, and weight is also genetically heritable around 70 to 80%. You know, so I would want to know about family history. I would want to know about, you know, their their um, their concerns about their health and well-being. So there are things in people's lives that they can't easily control, which could be how much money they're able to make in their job, which plays into the resources they have for food and movement, right? Or their responsibilities that they might have, whether they're a single parent or just too busy, really working parents that have childcare responsibilities as well as job responsibilities that also impede on their resources for things like time and money. Um, so really, I think it's about under, you know, working like every individual is different and they have a different lived experience. They have a different genetic history, a different amount of resources, a different set of interests. I think that because our culture is so weight centered and like I'm, I've kind of resolved I'm always going to get clients who come and sit down and say, hey, I got to do something about my weight, right? Like, even if what they really mean is they want to make improvements to their habits, or they they do have a weight concern, right? Because again, they'd like to conform a little bit better. It's not about that question ever going away. It's about how do you listen with empathy and really provide good supportive help and remember that, that the people we work with like we're really emotional driven kind of feeling creatures, right? So like 
we we want to take good care of ourselves, I think, naturally, and we want to feel good, right? So we do want to get better sleep, but that might be challenging. So how do you help someone get better sleep, right? We, we might understand it's important to not smoke and not drink too much, but we might need help with quit programs or ways of managing our stress and engaging in more mindful breathing and meditation to help us move further along in that category. And absolutely, we might have an interest in healthier eating patterns, but we need to find something workable based on, you know, time, what we know how to do and it's, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it's, I think so often what's presented to the people we work with is this, Eurocentric, like thin young white woman standard of like, it's got to be a green juice and Lululemon yoga pants and Soul Cycle, <laughs> right? And it's like, look, Basically. I've been to Soul Cycle and I do like green juices, you know. Right. I'm like, I love Soul Cycle. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I love a green smoothie, laugh, right? So you get it, right? <laughs> we get it. Yeah, we totally get it. Having the right bra can really help boost your confidence and self-esteem. Y'all know about my experience with bra shopping. So when Third Love reached out, I was a little hesitant. I'm like, okay, is my chest going to feel suffocated with these bras? The verdict, absolutely not. Third Love offers over 70 sizes and even include half cup sizes. They have a fit finder tool online, which you can try at home. You don't have to have a stranger awkwardly wrap a measuring tape around your boobs. While other brands charge more based on sizing, which is really messed up by the way, Third Love bras cost the same no matter what the size. They're really big on inclusive sizing. And what I loved about their site was that the bra models they use are all shades and sizes. It's not the usual size two model. They also have a 100% fit guarantee. Every customer has 60 days to wear the bras, wash it, put it to the test, and if you don't love it, return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Yes, Third Love is amazing. And this is hands down the most comfortable bra you'll own. No weird rashes, itching, or marks on your back. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. Go to thirdlove.com slash foodheaven right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash foodheaven. All right, let's get back to our episode. Okay, so one thing we haven't talked about is weight stigma. Can you just talk about what that is and how that fits into all of this conversation? Yeah. Um, You know, it's, I think that, you know, first in saying it, I want to just talk for a second about our common humanity and that we're all products of our culture, right? Our culture creates who we are and how we think and what we do. And from the time of one years old, anything that we absorbed in the world, we started to kind of make it like a copy of in our mind and an imprint, right? So any caregiver we ever had access to, playdates, you know, what was on TV, anything at all, things that were said, right? It, it all impacts us and becomes a voice of who we are and everything. So, so the idea of, well, how does that relate to, well, what do we believe about bodies? You know, and we end up creating these belief systems that there are good bodies and there are bad bodies and, you know, the good bodies are thinner and the bad bodies are fatter. And we actually see it it, it play out in, um, in, you know, in how it can impact somebody's quality of life. So Rebecca Puel is a researcher on weight stigma and she has shown that um, as your BMI climbs, you have less fewer job opportunities, and you're less likely to get promoted. So that hits people right in their pocketbook. And it can really be 
really unintentional microaggression stuff that happens, right? So if you're working out at a gym and you see someone who's at a higher weight and they're sweating, like that urge you might feel to like offer a congratulations to them or that urge you might feel to be like, yeah, I five, good for you, but you wouldn't do that to the other thin person on the other treadmill next to you because you might automatically believe that they're a beginner, right? The truth is you don't know if they're a certified personal trainer (laughs) just pushing themselves. And so it happens all the time down to like what size clothing is comfortable workout clothing is available to people at higher weights, right? And, you know, if you're a higher weight and a vegetarian, you must be doing that because you hate yourself and you're trying to lose weight. And that's not necessarily true. And so it's, it's things like that that impact our beliefs um, that then might impact how we treat somebody else. That's what we want to do. We want to challenge our own biases. This is everyone, not just healthcare providers, just everyone. Wait, you know, if we start from the belief that all bodies are good and that there are ways that the culture may have told me that that um, you know, certain bodies are good or bad or how to make assumptions, you know, that even if my intent is to be a helpful, caring person, that intent doesn't really lead to impact. And so if we could just start saying that, like, we don't know anybody's individual story and we don't want to make assumptions about them, um, we're actually really doing magnificent work to fight weight stigma just by kind of challenging our own bigotry because that reduces the oppression that they might um, feel. But, you know, weight, weight stigma is much more about the systems and structures that are in place that make it hard. And so the example I mentioned earlier, where you walk in, the doctor's going to wait and have that conversation based off BMI to, if you walk into a store, you know, you're super privileged. If you, you might not like what you see in the store, but you'll find stuff in your side. And there are people who are at higher weights that, you know, I think it's uh, 67% of American women are a size 14 or higher. And they're getting better in fashion, like for cute clothes for higher weight people. But the fact that it's such a larger percentage of people and clothing options go down as your size go up, we have to wonder and challenge why that is. And what we all need to know about it is because we don't have to make those daily stressful decisions, like am I safe or am I in danger? Am I safe with the doctors? Am I safe on the airplane? Is somebody going to yell at me for buying marshmallows at the grocery store today? Did that Daily chronic stress builds up and actually shows up in the body as risk factors for inflammation and diseases. And so it's not that they're not trying to get joyful movement in or not that they're not trying to make an effort to eat better. It's just people won't leave them alone with the assumption. And so it's the more privileged people from the healthcare standpoint and just for people who have size privilege to just try to learn and grow in this area. Try to reduce the assumptions that you make. Try to send love and kindness and compassion to others. And um, and you will be doing your part to make the world better. But ultimately, we got to kind of shut it down and do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, shut it down. Yeah. I'm with that. Yeah, I'm just like, all this weight stigma, especially, I mean, it's everywhere, but especially in healthcare, people don't want to go to the mm-hmm. doctor because they're like, oh my God, I'm going to hear the same shit over and over again. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends, she literally like 
forwarded me last week she forwarded me this email from her doctor and her because she needed like some kind of prescription and she's like well since your BMI is this you're a high risk for like liver disease kidney disease like it was like she was gonna die and she's like Mm -hmm. therefore this is my recommendation you need to get tested for and she was devastated and like she loved going to this doctor Um, and she was Mm -hmm. like I don't think I want to go again and I hear this all the time from my friends especially my friends who are of size they're like I don't want to see my doctor again because once that conversation came up about BMI I completely shut down and I felt like they were judging Mm me they didn't ask me any questions about my life and I know that this is something that a lot of people struggle with when going to the doctor and they're like shit I'm just not gonna go so how do people Mm -hmm. navigate that like when when they go to their appointments and doctors are constantly bringing it up because it can be really scary to speak up and say hey you know like I I don't appreciate that that makes me feel really uncomfortable have you found like any any useful ways to talk with your provider about that? Yeah, a hundred percent. First of all, keep doing what you're doing and validating for everyone you work with that, that you are not the problem. The system and the structure and the doctor is the problem because they need to hear that from you a million times before they'll believe it. And I mentioned it briefly, but just to reinforce for you, and I'll I'll share this research study too, because it was one of my favorite studies that came out in 2018 that actually showed a model of what leads to healthcare avoidance. And as a person's body mass index climbs, they have higher experiences of body-related guilt and shame related to the healthcare encounter. But it's when the guilt and shame lead to healthcare stress. That's the mitigating variable. When they have stress over the healthcare encounter, they are likely to avoid going back. And so if we think about healthcare avoidance, that should be our concern about health, not the obesity epidemic, right? Like what are doctors doing wrong that are making it so that people avoid going to see the doctors? And if you think about how, oh, well, higher weight people cost this much more money on the healthcare system, right? The quote, burden you'll even read about, you know, well, could things be, be caught sooner, right? With less expensive tests, if they weren't experiencing weight stigma in the medical practice. And there have been studies. I mean, one woman, she dedicated her obituary to talking about all the weight stigma that she experienced throughout her entire life. That went viral. There was a big story that went viral. Someone whose cancer got missed for a couple of years because the answer was always lose weight. She's like, nope, I'm really out of breath. Ended up being lung cancer. So this is, this is a real problem in the profession. And so back to like, well, how do we empower our clients? I mean, you set big boundaries. So assuming you have the privilege to have health insurance, assuming you have the privilege to choose the doctors, right? Literally from the get-go and write it down in a note in a letter. This is how I need you to respect my weight and my body. I'm going to refuse all weights unless they're medically necessary. These are things you can ask me about. You can ask me about joyful movement. Um, You can ask me about sleep. You can ask me if I need help with my food ideas or eating patterns, you know, like, so you can literally set the guides for how you want them to be able to treat you. Um, Many doctors are not trauma informed. And so, you know, how might you explain whether it's a trauma of chronic dieting, or maybe you had an eating disorder, maybe you had food insecurity as a kid and that you have, you know, worked your way through that in therapy, but it, 
it sort of has adjusted your relationship to food and body and even talking about um, food and your weight is, is re-traumatizing, you know, like we hope that the doctors will become more educated so they do less harm. But while we know that there's harm being done in the medical profession, the number one thing we need to do is figure out the boundaries and tell people how we want to be treated and demand that of them. There's some simple tools. I'll give you the link to Reagan Chastain. She's a fat activist and has a blog called Dances with Fat. She also happens to have the Guinness World Record for the highest weight um, female who's completed a marathon. So again, back into that, like don't judge um, people by their size, but she has these awesome cards that you can print out. And it's literally like, this is how I want you to take care of my medical needs. So that could be helpful to people too. Thank you so much for those resources. I'm like writing everything down because (laughs) I have patients where I literally have to coach them through the trauma of seeing a doctor or seeing a specialist. And it sometimes it's like a whole visit of like, okay, what are, you know, what are you going to say? Like, you know, how to try to make things like less triggering because people, you're so right. Like we don't know someone's history and someone's trauma and someone's potential eating disorder, disordered eating their habits. And, you know, a lot of these folks are like super active people who just, you know, happen to be at higher weights and the doctors make so many assumptions and don't give them the care that they need. And it just makes me really upset. And I feel like as sometimes doctors, and I know everybody means well, but, or healthcare providers in general, will just label people, oh, they're non-compliant. It's like, okay. Like, oh. mm. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah, it's like, I just, it was like, you know, that sound of the nails on the chalkboard. Is, is that, yeah. that's what went on in my ears when I heard non-compliant. Because that is, um, every time I hear that, I, I always start with the word gently. So if you ever see me on social media going gently, and then blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> somebody use the word non-compliant, because that's when I get back to the, put your, you know, the empathy part, the yeah. lived experience. Um, and that, you know, so somebody, you know, so somebody is an able body or they are going to a a dialysis clinic or they have a new diagnosis of diabetes. There is so much shame people carry with them about having any kind of health problem. Um, and that is, is a problem in and of itself. And it's rooted in this belief that we have a hundred percent control over our health, our entire life. And if we happen to get anything ever, we caused it and that we are now responsible for getting ourselves out of it. So, you know, when you mentioned people who are doing, you know, reasonable, healthy habits, but they're still going to be judged, even if your lived experience has been that, oh yeah, things I could have done better here, 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 you know, just the idea that you need medical care is now this source of shame and blame you're not doing that to yourself, that that shame cycle is a result of what our culture says you should be doing. And that's just so messed up, right? I mean, it, the word is health care, right? Like, don't doctors go into medicine to do no harm? Don't we, like you said earlier, our intention is to help people. And so it's like having this really high compassion, not judging about non-compliant. There is a million reasons why somebody might have difficulty doing the things that we are on the list, right? That we want them to do, that they wish that they could do. And it could absolutely have to do with practical things like resources. It could do with mental health. And frankly, we're not even talking about health unless we're talking about mental health too. So 
you know, that's a whole other barrier that we need to be able to consider, right, from the folks of us that are like, hey, let's add a fruits and veggies to our shopping list this week. You know, Mm -hmm. we also need to be trained in understanding what it's like to struggle with mental health and how that might impact our self-care abilities. Yeah. I just wrote this article for self about how healthy eating is about your mental and social health too, because that's often overlooked. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's actually a good segue because we talk so much about BMI and how it can be problematic. And I just want to spend a second to talk about how people can take care of themselves. What are your recommendations without focusing on BMI? Sure. Um, Well, I think one of like, if, if there was the first step for everyone, I think you take your hands and you place them over your heart and you soften your eyes. And as you breathe, you repeat to yourself, it's okay. I am good. I can handle this. Right. I will take care of myself. And it, you know, it's a form of affirmation that is, connecting, right? We do all have an inner caregiver in our minds. The voice is there, but it's very quiet, right? Because of diet culture and all the other messages. We got the perfectionist, the judger, the toddler who just wants to do whatever, the rebel who's like, you can't control me, right? And we have this caregiver voice. And I honestly think that if we start with this, it's okay, a simple form of self-compassion, Because a lot of people are like, take a bubble bath and reduce your stress. You've jumped kind of too far, right? Because a lot of people have really challenging problems that no amount of bubble baths are really going to solve. (laughs) So it's this idea, right? It's this idea that like nobody gets a pain-free life. And yes, I might be going through something really difficult and you feel uncertain. Your hope and confidence is pretty darn low. And what helps you kind of shift to a little bit more optimism and a little bit more hope that things can get better. Like I can create a better life for myself. It starts with that compassion that it's okay. This is hard, but I can handle this and I'm going to take care of myself. And then all the other further steps, it's in line with your caregiver, right? What would my caregiver do? And what everybody needs to do is going to look a little bit different, but I would highly recommend that you stop creating a giant list of everything that's wrong with you and everything you need to fix, right? That's like letting your inner critic run roughshod. You know, (laughs) you're going to finish that list being like, you suck and you're not going to do anything. Start with that compassion practice and just start picking a couple things, one or two things that you're going to pay more attention to, whether it's I'm going to drink more water. Okay, I'm peeing clear again and I do want to get a little bit more sleep, you know, and then all right, let me cook a couple more meals at home than I typically would. But a lot of times these people think that it's, um, that's not enough. And it's actually a gentle pattern that creates a sense of achievement that makes you feel even more confident that you could build from there. Rebecca, have you thought about doing some kind of guided meditation audiobook? I know. <laughs> I was like doing the meditation as, as you were saying, saying it. it. Jess is over here, like holding her heart. <laughs> that was a really great activity. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Maybe I think that's one day. yeah. That's that's really helpful. I think for people to just pause 
take a few seconds, practice gratitude, and really just align themselves with the here and now. I think that's really, that's a really great activity to do to just check in with yourself. Um, this has been great. We love having you on as always. Please tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, check out bodykindnessbook.com slash start. And you can get a free uh, e-course from that page. And if you're a helping pro, you can let me know because I like to reach out to helping pros with other opportunities. Um, And I'll check in with you on how you're doing with your body kind of practice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. If you like this episode, you already know the deal. Go to iTunes right now. Leave us a review because this really, really helps us. I know you might think it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll get to it when I can. No, it really helps us grow the podcast. So make sure you get on it right now. Listen up to this listener review. I'm always looking for perspective from young Black women, so I really appreciate Wendy and Jessica's work around health and nutrition. I find the podcast to be helpful, relevant, and fun to listen to. I've learned so much from these ladies, and I will continue to tune in. Oh, thank you so much for that really sweet review. We really appreciate it. And for those of you who don't know, our podcast is released every Wednesday. In each episode, we cover tips and tricks for making lifelong, sustainable, healthy living changes to upgrade your diet and health. We also interview leading experts in the fields of health and nutrition to pick their brains on how you can cultivate a healthy life that you love. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Did you know that Third Love offers free returns whenever you need it? Well, I actually did need it. I wanted to adjust the sizing a little bit, and the process was so easy. All I had to do was send the bras back using a prepaid label, and I got my new bras within a week. They communicated with me every step of the way, and in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, this is customer service to a whole nother level. Ready to check out their amazing bras? Go to thirdlove.com slash foodheaven and get 15% off today. 